Uh, our sermon text this morning picks up where we left off last week. We're in John chapter 4, verses 43 through 54. We're continuing on in our sermon series in the Gospel of John. Um, and where this picks up is Jesus has just made his big public debut in Jerusalem, probably a few weeks earlier. He walked into the temple. He cleansed the temple. He set the oppression and the, 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 the blocking of people coming into the temple to worship God by the money changers who were basically charging a fee to come to God has to stop. And of course, he did this at Passover. There were probably 400, 500,000 people in the city at the time, so it made quite a splash (laughs) in the middle of the week of Passover for someone to stop what's going on in the temple. So what we have here is Jesus has made his way home, and this is the first time he has come back home to Galilee, his home region, after this has happened. So he's made his big public splash. Everybody's talking about it. It's the big talk of the town. And here's the hometown boy come home. And that's where we pick up. Um, We'll be reading verses 43 through 54 um, through the end of chapter 4. This is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. After the two days, in Samaria that is, he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him. And he begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and he departed. And while he was still on the way, his servants met with him, met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that in it we get a picture and a glimpse of who you are and what you're about. And a picture of who we are in you. So I pray in these moments, by your spirit, open the eyes of our heart to see the beauty and majesty of Jesus. That we might cling to him in faith all the more. All this in his name. Amen. So a number of years ago, Angela and I did a uh, country music showcase at Johnston Community College in Smithfield. Now, I don't like country music. I never have. But it's fun to play on guitar. So um, when Angela brought the idea up, I thought, eh, that, that would be fun. I'd enjoy that. We did a couple of Dolly Parton songs, actually. And uh, it was a lot of fun. Um, but I remember the first year, we go for the tryouts, and you had to perform like a minute thing, and there were... There were probably 75 people, so we heard 75 one-minute clips of country songs as we were sitting there waiting for our, our chance. And, um, but I remember one specific guy got up there. I think he was 16 years old. He was skinny as a rail. He got up there, and he had this he had this deep voice, and he did a Josh Turner song, and it was this really nice bass voice. I didn't expect it to come out of this guy, and I thought, well, he's definitely going to make one of the shows, and he did. So we got put on a show, 
And uh, when it was time for our show, we suddenly heard that this guy with a deep voice was not on the show anymore because he was going to be on American Idol. It was Scotty McCreary who wound up winning that year. So suddenly this guy that we had heard one minute of singing at this showcase was on TV every week. This kid that you could find at Bojangles and Garner was suddenly just on TV every week, and he, he won. It was a big deal. Now after that, Suddenly, Scotty McCreary kind of became one of my uh, tickets to impress people when I, I would say, well, you know, we were on the Country News Showcase, Scotty McCreary. Well, he didn't actually perform because he had to go to American Idol. Like, Ooh. It was good. And his hometown boy, you know, made good. He was on TV. He won. Um, of course, I didn't like his music, really. I'm not a big country music fan. And I didn't know him at all. We were in the room, same room with each other once. But that didn't matter when I was telling the story because it really wasn't about Scotty. It was about me. It was about me and my connection to Simon Cowell, I guess. I don't even know if he was on American Idol at the time. In our passage today, something like that is happening with Jesus coming home. As I said, he, he had just made his big public debut, debut at, in uh, Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. And he stopped uh, the, what was going on at the temple and ground all to a halt, and it was the talk all around, because how dare somebody do that? And now he's coming home for the very first time, and as it says in our passage, he's welcomed. The Galileans welcome him. But it says that, I don't know if you noticed this when we were reading, right beside a statement that says, Jesus himself had said, a prophet has no honor in his hometown. And so these sentences stand beside each other. The prophet has no honor, and the Galileans welcomed him. Now, we have to wonder, is, is the gospel writer confused? Is that a sentence that got worked in there that needed to be edited out and forgot? No, actually, I think what he's saying is something similar to what he said at the end of chapter 2 when he said that Jesus would not entrust himself to people because he knew them. He did not need any testimony about mankind for he knew what was in each person. Remember, it said that right before his conversation with Nicodemus who came to him with kind of ulterior motives. The same thing's happening here in Galilee. He comes home, and he's welcomed as this new hometown boy made good, this hero, in a sense. Um, but he wasn't being received. Their idea of what Jesus was and their connection as, yeah, we're from Galilee too. That's what they were about, but not Jesus himself. And, and we know that because, um, to fast forward a little bit in the story, Jesus is just flat out rejected by these folks. Um, you can see it explicitly in, in a, uh, Luke chapter 4. It records his very first sermon at his home synagogue. So Jesus goes to his home church to preach, and it ends with a mob trying to throw him off of a cliff. It doesn't go well, <laughs> his first sermon back home. But the reason is, and this is kind of a hint of where this goes, is because Jesus indicates to them when he's speaking to them that what his kingdom is going to be about is a kind of radical welcome. That it's not going to be just about him bringing good stuff back to them as Galileans. That him as Messiah is going to fling the doors of the kingdom wide open. That all kinds of people might come in and find the grace of God. That's why they find so offensive. How dare he welcome the ungodly, the people who have put us down. Well, we actually see some of this in, in, in this passage. And, you know, before we move on, I don't, I don't want to 
pile on the Galileans and act like they were especially bad, that they, uh, <laughs> that they were doing something uh, especially odd by being excited about the idea of Jesus but not the actual uh, actuality of who he was because that's something I think we see all around us and in our own hearts. It's actually a form of taking the Lord's name in vain um, where we like the idea of what Jesus can be for us more than the reality of who he is. And we see that, you know, I could go on all morning listing examples. We see that in politics. Um, just about every politician we know name checks Jesus or they try to do a speech in a church or whatever. And, and it's a, you know, they've got to play to the Christian base or, or whatever. Um, and then even, you know, throughout history, Jesus' name begins to be invoked by people who are trying to go to war. <laughs> Not that the reality of war doesn't sometimes have to happen, but you know the idea of uh, crusaders going to the Holy Land in you know, 10th century with crosses on their shields. There's something weird about that. Or we could talk about churches. How many churches have talked much about Jesus, but they're empty of love for one another and love for God and love for their community? Or we can talk about my own life. How, how many times do I disregard the calling of Jesus to me to love others sacrificially and well. I want to think of Jesus as someone who brings something good to me, but not as someone who's calling me out of my selfishness. Calling me to walk in love for people that I frankly don't want to love. It's easy for our rejection of Jesus to look like accepting him in a sense. And that's what happens here with these Galileans, but as we said, we see the hints in this passage as to why he's rejected. And this is, uh, we see this in this passage as to who he heals. Let me explain. Um, in this passage, Jesus kind of breaks the mold. He explodes their expectations and he extends his grace to maybe the least qualified person that they could think of in the entire region of Galilee, a royal official. It says in verse 46, he was a certain royal official. This would have been the most unwelcome of leaders in the town. Now, about 30 years after the time of Jesus, the, the, uh, the Jewish people rose up in revolt against the Roman Empire. And Jerusalem as a city was destroyed and the temple was destroyed just about 30 years after the time of Jesus. So the decades leading up to that were a time of political turmoil. There were a lot of... Uh, bad things going on, and these royal officials were almost kind of like a standing invading army. <laughs> That's how they would have been seen. They weren't welcomed in. These were governors from the outside. They weren't people that were invested in the community locally. They were strangers who had come there to take their money, or strangers who had come in to rule over them in bad ways. And the text says he was stationed in Capernaum which was kind of the biggest city in the region. It was about 16 miles from Cana, where the where Jesus is here, um, and it was like a, the main hub there on the Sea of Galilee, kind of a big dock. Capernaum literally translates to fisher town, um, so it was, you know, a fishing market community. And this is where he was stationed. It was time of turmoil, as I said. So when this, uh, this royal official comes to Jesus, the people watching would have been, why is he coming to our guy? How dare he? to our God. 
But this man hears that Jesus has returned to Galilee, and he goes to find him, and he arrives to Jesus in desperation. Look at verse 47. He went to him, and he begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Now notice, in the fear of this moment, this man's importance, his position that he had been given, it drops away. He doesn't come to Jesus and say, I command you as the royal official stationed here in Galilee, heal my son. Now in the fear of his moment, his importance, his position drops away. And here he is begging a poor peasant man. That's who Jesus was, a poor peasant who's now lauded as a healer to come and help him. And then Jesus responds in what might seem like a confusing way in verse 48. Um, and he actually turns from addressing the man directly and addresses the people that are gathered around. He's saying y'all here, <laughs> basically, to the people around. And he says, unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. And Jesus is taking this moment to make a point to the Galileans that they like the wonder. They like the spectacle. And the juxtaposition for us if we're reading through the Gospel of John, remember Jesus has just been in Samaria. He's been in a place where it wasn't his hometown. He's been in a place where he wouldn't be expected to go. And what happens in Samaria? He doesn't do any miracles. He doesn't heal anybody. He has a conversation with a woman at a wedding. A conversation about shame. And he invites her in to receive, as he talks about, a, a living water that will nourish her and not run dry. And the rest of the Samaritans come on her testimony. It's all about words. It's not signs. It's not any big deeds that Jesus does. They hear this word and they arrive. But here he comes to Galilee. Here he comes to Galilee. The, among these people who uh, had the fullness of the Old Testament scriptures, who knew the promises of God, and he arrives people who have already seen and heard him, and as he points out here, they just love the spectacle of who he is. And he knows these are people that are going to turn on him when, he see, when they see that he flings the door of his kingdom open further than they want it to be. Because their idea of who Jesus ought to be as their Messiah is kind of like an ATM. That they'll come to him when they have some needs, they'll punch in their pin code, you know, do the right religious things and get what they need. And he's just a distributor of, of blessings instead of a real person that they encounter and receive by faith. Instead of the king who has come in grace inviting them into his kingdom. So this, this conversation is happening and, and Jesus, oddly enough, turns and addresses kind of everybody that's standing there. The royal official here is not deterred. He doesn't back away and say, okay, Jesus doesn't want to talk to me. No, he's not. In the face of probably confusion at what Jesus has just said, he persists and he says, sir, come down before my child dies. Now, notice, he would not have called this poor peasant man, sir. This is this royal official in the face of Jesus, the Messiah, letting his self-importance, letting his position, letting his, the presumption that would have come in his position as a royal official drop away in the face of God in the flesh. And he doesn't say, I command you to heal. I'm your superior. In fact, here, what we see in front of a crowd, this probably would have been seen as demeaning. As of the people there to the royal official. 
And so he speaks these simple words, come down before my child dies. He doesn't make a case. He doesn't have big flowery words. He says, come, please help. And I think the simplicity here, I think, shows a depth of faith. Now, for this royal official, his faith was new. It was probably brand new the moment he came to Jesus. And it's a faith that may still be young and new, but a faith that has seen and heard of this Jesus and what God has begun to do through him. And it's a faith that's reaching out to grasp a hold of that, even if he can't understand it all. This makes me think of the beauty of, of simple prayers. You know, in a way, we're praying, it's easier to say bigger, more flowery prayers. It's easy to, to learn a few theological terms and, and say big, lofty prayers. It really is. Because you can learn... Uh, you can learn the words, you can learn the patterns, and you can impress everybody with the words you say when you pray. It really doesn't take faith to pray those kinds of prayers. But to pray simple prayers, come before my child dies, to simply pray, Jesus, help. Lord, please fix this. Or even just to repeat the words of the Lord's Prayer. That takes faith. To come to God without pretense, without fancy language. To come believing you're heard, not because of the number of words you say, but because you are received by Jesus with simplicity and authenticity of heart. You know, maybe sometimes the best thing we can do is pray simple prayers. Um, you know, I've always thought, when people talk about I have my quiet time and I get alone and I read my scripture and I pray for an hour. And people say that and do you have a clock that you start? And I'm going to pray for 50. I'm going to read for five minutes and pray for 55. Now, I think some of the, uh, in my own experience, some of the most driven by faith in God prayers I've ever prayed are, are groans when I didn't even have words. But those are heard because we aren't heard by the number of words that we say. And in this passage, Jesus responds to the simplicity of this faith, the simplicity of this prayer, by healing this son with a word. Jesus is 16 miles away. And he demonstrates his authority, his power, his character. He says, go, your son will live. Now, in the Gospel of John, this is the most uh, dramatic and kind of obviously powerful miracle that Jesus has done so far. And if you read through the first 11 chapters of John's Gospel, you'll see that the signs, he calls them signs, he does get, get a little more dramatic over time. The first one was he turned water into wine at Cana in Galilee. And he was in the same room as these water pots, and he turned, turned it into wine. Here, he's 16 miles away. And I won't list all the signs and miracles he does, but in chapter 11 of John's Gospel, he calls Lazarus out of the grave who had been dead for four days. It's this like dramatic picking up to show the power and the authority and the, the goodness of who Jesus is. And you may remember if you were here when, I was, when we preached through the wedding at Cana, the, the changing of the water and the wine, I said, you know, when we look at the, the miracles of Jesus or the signs of Jesus in the Gospel of John, 
it, it's a helpful rubric to see how does this show his power, how does this show his authority, how does it show his character? His power, his you know, ability, his authority, his right to say what he does and uh, do what he does, and his character, the things that makes those good. Jesus is goodness. Well, how do we see that here? Here, we see this as an obvious display of power. As we said, this is 16 miles away. He speaks, and the, the boy is healed at that moment, 16 miles away. How does it show his authority? Well, what does he do? He speaks, and it happens. He shows his authority as the Son of God. And the next few chapters of John is going to talk about that a lot. We'll be talking about authority a lot in a few weeks. And this shows his character above all things, right? Into the emptiness of this man's desperation, Jesus brings the fullness of life. And to the chaos of the sickness, Jesus returns the boy's body to right order. He brings him back to good health. Jesus shows that he's the one to give grace. That he uses his power and his authority not to squash people, not even this royal uh, official who had probably even taken advantage of people in Jesus' family or maybe Jesus himself. He uses that grace for his benefit. But here's the thing. When I think about the power and the authority of the character of Jesus and this healing of this boy, I have a tension in my heart. I have a tension in my heart because I've seen sickness in my life. I've seen people pass away before their time. And I've prayed simple prayers in the midst of that that were not answered. I've prayed desperate prayers that were not answered. And I've come away wondering how healing in life didn't come. And wondering where God you probably have too. There's probably experiences in your life in the past or right now that are coming to your mind. And I have to wonder why. And I wish I had a good answer. I wish I could say there's some kind of equation, like if you pray 73 times and not 72, that it'll, that's when it'll happen. Healing will happen at the 73rd prayer. Or I could give you an equation, like the, these exact words equal God doing this. I don't have that. But here's what I do have. Notice that this passage calls this healing a sign. What do signs do? Signs point. Signs indicate. If you're driving down 95 towards South Carolina, signs tell you how far it's going to take you to get to South Carolina. Successive. The sign points you to keep going. Now, don't stop. Keep driving, guys, when you get to South Carolina. <laughs> no. Um, but signs point. Signs indicate. Like a billboard maybe tells you something that's coming ahead, or maybe a sign, like a stop sign, directs you what to do when you get to it. And I think the reason why John calls these demonstrations of power signs, he never uses the word miracle. The reason he calls them signs, because they aren't just demonstrations of power meant to impress us. They aren't just magic tricks that Jesus does for us to go, ooh, that's really cool. No, as signs, they're indicators. They're pointers to the kind of king that Jesus is and pointers to the kind of kingdom that Jesus is bringing. And as this, as signs, they point us to where it's all going. Now, we've already read some about this in our, our, uh, our uh, worship service today, in our confession uh, and assurance in Revelation 21. The signs of Jesus in the Gospels in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are pointers essentially, to the kind of kingdom that he brings here in Revelation 21. 
And as we prayed earlier, we're still in in-between times, in a sense. Jesus has defeated the power of death. Jesus has overcome the reality and the guilt of our sin at his cross. He has burst forth in the grave in new life. But we still live between the time when the new creation has begun as resurrection and the culmination of it all at him making all things new in Revelation 21. We await the day. We long for the day when things will be made new. We long for the day when drugs won't ravage our community. We long for the day when children won't be abandoned by their parents. We long for things to be made right. We don't see that. But the signs we see in this gospel tell us where it's going, where the kingdom that we've been brought into by faith is going. In the wedding at Cana, think about what happened there. It's revealed in this sign of him turning the water into wine that the kingdom of God is a kingdom of feasting and joy. That the arrival of Jesus is the God whose life is love. The God whose life is joy, bringing his joy that it may be ours. That we may be invited in. And the image is that of feasting. That we feast in the abundance of what God has at his cost. That's the kingdom that our king is bringing his cost for our benefit. And the cleansing of the temple, what's shown in that sign? That the kingdom that Jesus is bringing is a kingdom where the dividing walls of hostility that, that separate people and separate uh, folks from God are torn down. It's a kingdom where oppression, oppression is destroyed, where people with false power will no longer be able to stand in the way of the grace of God. In his, his conversation with Jesus, uh, with Nicodemus in chapter 3 of John, which can kind of be a sign, these conversations that Jesus has. What do we find? We find it's a kingdom that's rooted in God's love in Christ. The God who so loved the world that he gave. And he sent his son not to condemn us, but to save us from condemnation. This is a kingdom where condemnation is taken away. In his conversation with the Samaritan woman, it's a kingdom where the door, this kingdom is flung wide, where Jews, where Samaritans, where Gentiles, no matter what your background is, that you can come in, and us and all of our diversity of experience and background and history can come in and find our home in him and have our shame destroyed and taken away. And here, in this passage, it's a kingdom where the desperation of sickness will be steeled. Where sickness, whether short-term or long-term, no matter its severity, doesn't have the final word. Where our struggle can be defined by the victory to where it's leading. Or as we read in Revelation 21, which I want to point out, Revelation 21, this grand lofty vision of all things being made new, was written by the same guy who wrote the gospel. He saw this vision as a probably 90-year-old man. <laughs> and let's read those words again. Let's see where this kingdom is going. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look! 
God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no crying or pain. For the old order of things have passed away. He was seated on the throne and said, I am making everything new. Everything. In the midst of our longing, in these in-between times, in the midst of our weakness and in our diseases and our frustrations, we look to signs like this in John 4, and we hope. There's one theologian that defined hope for the Christian as remembering the future. We see this sign and we hope, because as sure as Jesus has been raised from the dead in victory, we hope with assurance of God's intentions for us. That not only that we might be saved from, from one fever, because in this sign, this little boy was saved from a fever and brought back to life. But what eventually happened? The boy who was healed here eventually died. Even Lazarus, who was brought back from the dead in John 11, he eventually died. But these are all signs pointing to a greater victory. Not just a healing from a fever or even bringing back Lazarus from a grave, from an untimely death. It's the destruction of death entirely. As Revelation 21 says, no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. Jesus has worked, and we can hope in this, to free us from the bonds of all sickness and disease forever. Even if we cannot claim that today or tomorrow, that's where this is leading. And it's hard. It's hard. But we can look to these signs and look beyond them to where they point. The love of Jesus for us that will have the final word. You know, there's no question about it in closing. The grace of God is baffling. It's utterly baffling. We can't make heads or tails of it. Yeah, it's a grace we can be sure of because it's, it's, it's founded in who Jesus is, but it's a grace that we can't know beforehand what it's going to look like playing out. You know, one of the reasons that Jesus was rejected in his hometown one of the reasons he was not received with open arms but was ultimately rejected is because the grace he brought looked a little too radical, a little too different, a little too wrong, a little too baffling. And in the face of the reality of what God's grace was, his kingdom flung open wide, the people there in Galilee said, no thanks. We'd rather have our idea of what the grace of God should be rather than the reality of it in the flesh Jesus, Jesus who let the wrong folks in, who kept telling the right folks they needed to be born again to receive his grace like a child and not like a paycheck they had earned. In the face of baffling grace, our invitation this morning is not to turn away. In the face of grace that we wish was more evident, and the realities of sickness and death in our world, the things we don't like. Let us come to King, to our King Jesus, like this royal official did. In the simplicity of faith, that can respond to His love. Let's not turn away in the face of baffling grace, but let's receive it and remain baffled, and know His intentions for us are sure, and know where this is all going, where all things are made new, including 